The Moonstone, Part 44. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. Read by Graham Redman. The Discovery of the Truth. Fourth Narrative Continued. Two o'clock a.m. The experiment has been tried. With what result I am now to describe. At eleven o'clock I rang the bell for Betteridge and told Mr. Blake that he might at last prepare himself for bed. I looked out of the window at the night. It was mild and rainy, resembling in this respect the night of the birthday, the 21st of June last year. Without professing to believe in omens, it was at least encouraging to find no direct nervous influences, no stormy or electric perturbations, in the atmosphere. Betteridge joined me at the window, and mysteriously put a little slip of paper into my hand. It contained these lines. Mrs. Meridew has gone to bed on the distinct understanding that the explosion is to take place at nine tomorrow morning, and that I am not to stir out of this part of the house until she comes and sets me free. She has no idea that the chief scene of the experiment is my sitting-room, or she would have remained in it for the whole night. I am alone and very anxious. Pray let me see you measure out the laudanum. I want to have something to do with it, even in the unimportant character of a mere looker-on. R.V. I followed Betteridge out of the room, and told him to remove the medicine-chest into Miss Verinder's sitting-room. The order appeared to take him completely by surprise. He looked as if he suspected me of some occult medical design on Miss Ferinder. "'Might I presume to ask,' he said, "'what my young lady and the medicine-chest have got to do with each other? "'Stay in the sitting-room, and you will see.' Betteridge appeared to doubt his own unaided capacity to superintend me effectually, on an occasion when a medicine-chest was included in the proceedings. "'Is there any objection, sir?' he asked, "'to taking Mr. Bruff into this part of the business?' "'Quite the contrary. I am now going to ask Mr. Bruff to accompany me downstairs.' Betteridge withdrew to fetch the medicine-chest without another word. I went back into Mr. Blake's room, and knocked at the door of communication. Mr. Bruff opened it with his papers in his hand, immersed in law, impenetrable to medicine. "'I am sorry to disturb you,' I said, "'but I am going to prepare the laudanum for Mr. Blake, and I must request you to be present and to see what I do.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Bruff, with nine-tenths of his attention riveted on his papers, and with one-tenth unwillingly accorded to me. Anything else? I must trouble you to return here with me and to see me administer the dose. Anything else? One thing more. 
I must put you to the inconvenience of remaining in Mr. Blake's room, and of waiting to see what happens. Oh, very good, said Mr. Bruff. My room, or Mr. Blake's room, it doesn't matter which. I can go on with my papers anywhere. Unless you object, Mr. Jennings, to my importing that amount of common sense into the proceedings. Before I could answer, Mr. Blake addressed himself to the lawyer, speaking from his bed. "'Do you really mean to say that you don't feel any interest in what we are going to do?' he asked. "'Mr. Bruff, you have no more imagination than a cow.' "'A cow is a very useful animal, Mr. Blake,' said the lawyer. With that reply he followed me out of the room, still keeping his papers in his hand. We found Miss Verinder pale and agitated, restlessly pacing her sitting-room from end to end. At a table in a corner stood Betteridge, on guard over the medicine-chest. Mr. Bruff sat down on the first chair that he could find, and, emulating the usefulness of the cow, plunged back again into his papers on the spot. Miss Verinder drew me aside, and reverted instantly to her one all-absorbing interest, her interest in Mr. Blake. "'How is he now?' she asked. "'Is he nervous? Is he out of temper? Do you think it will succeed? Are you sure it will do no harm?' "'Quite sure. Come and see me measure it out.' "'One moment. It is past eleven now. How long will it be before anything happens?' It is not easy to say. An hour, perhaps. I suppose the room must be dark as it was last year? Certainly. I shall wait in my bedroom, just as I did before. I shall keep the door a little way open. It was a little way open last year. I will watch the sitting-room door, and the moment it moves I will blow out my light. It all happened in that way on my birthday night. "'And it must all happen again in the same way, mustn't it? "'Are you sure you can control yourself, Miss Verinder? "'In his interests I can do anything,' she answered fervently. "'One look at her face told me that I could trust her. "'I addressed myself again to Mr. Bruff. "'I must trouble you to put your papers aside for a moment,' I said. "'Oh, certainly.' He got up with a start, as if I had disturbed him at a particularly interesting place, and followed me to the medicine-chest. There, deprived of the breathless excitement incidental to the practice of his profession, he looked at Betteridge and yawned wearily. Miss Verinder joined me with a glass jug of cold water which she had taken from a side-table. "'Let me pour out the water.' she whispered. I must have a hand in it. I measured out the forty minims from the bottle, and poured the laudanum into a medicine-glass. "'Fill it till it is three parts full,' I said, and handed the glass to Miss Verinder. I then directed Betteridge to lock up the medicine-chest, informing him that I had done with it now. A look of unutterable relief overspread the old servant's countenance, he had evidently suspected me of a medical design on his young lady. After adding the water as I had directed, 
Miss Verinder seized a moment, while Betteridge was locking the chest and while Mr. Bruff was looking back to his papers, and slyly kissed the rim of the medicine-glass. "'When you give it to him,' said the charming girl, "'give it to him on that side.' I took the piece of crystal which was to represent the diamond from my pocket, and gave it to her. "'You must have a hand in this too,' I said. "'You must put it where you put the moonstone last year.' She led the way to the Indian cabinet, and put the mock diamond into the drawer which the real diamond had occupied on the birthday night. Mr. Bruff witnessed this proceeding, under protest, as he had witnessed everything else. But the strong dramatic interest which the experiment was now assuming proved, to my great amusement, to be too much for Betteridge's capacity of self-restraint. His hand trembled as he held the candle, and he whispered anxiously, "'Are you sure, miss, it's the right drawer?' I led the way out again, with the laudanum and water in my hand, at the door I stopped to address a last word to Miss Verinder. "'Don't be long in putting out the lights,' I said. "'I will put them out at once,' she answered, "'and I will wait in my bedroom with only one candle alight.' She closed the sitting-room door behind us. Followed by Mr. Bruff and Betteridge, I went back to Mr. Blake's room. We found him moving restlessly from side to side of the bed, and wondering irritably whether he was to have the laudanum that night. In the presence of the two witnesses I gave him the dose, and shook up his pillows, and told him to lie down again quietly and wait. His bed, provided with light chintz curtains, was placed, with the head against the wall of the room, so as to leave a good open space on either side of it. On one side I drew the curtains completely, and in the part of the room thus screened from his view I placed Mr. Bruff and Betteridge to wait for the result. At the bottom of the bed I half drew the curtains, and placed my own chair at a little distance, so that I might let him see me or not see me, speak to me or not speak to me, just as the circumstances might direct. Having already been informed that he always slept with a light in the room, I placed one of the two lighted candles on a little table at the head of the bed, where the glare of the light would not strike on his eyes. The other candle I gave to Mr. Bruff, the light in this instance being subdued by the screen of the chintz curtains. The window was open at the top, so as to ventilate the room. The rain fell softly, the house was quiet. It was twenty minutes past eleven by my watch when the preparations were completed, and I took my place on the chair set apart at the bottom of the bed. Mr. Bruff resumed his papers, with every appearance of being as deeply interested in them as ever. But looking towards him now I saw certain signs and tokens which told me that the law was beginning to lose its hold on him at last. The suspended interest of the situation in which we were now placed was slowly asserting its influence even on his unimaginative mind. As for Betteridge, consistency of principle and dignity of conduct had become, in his case, mere empty words. 
He forgot that I was performing a conjuring trick on Mr. Franklin Blake. He forgot that I had upset the house from top to bottom. He forgot that I had not read Robinson Crusoe since I was a child. "'For the Lord's sake, sir,' he whispered to me, "'tell us when it will begin to work.' "'Not before midnight,' I whispered back. "'Say nothing, and sit still.' Betteridge dropped to the lowest depth of familiarity with me, without a struggle to save himself. He answered by a wink. Looking next towards Mr. Blake, I found him as restless as ever in his bed, fretfully wondering why the influence of the laudanum had not begun to assert itself yet. To tell him in his present humour that the more he fidgeted and wondered, the longer he would delay the result for which we were now waiting, would have been simply useless. The wiser course to take was to dismiss the idea of the opium from his mind, by leading him insensibly to think of something else. With this view, I encouraged him to talk to me, contriving so to direct the conversation on my side as to lead it back again to the subject which had engaged us earlier in the evening, the subject of the diamond. I took care to revert to those portions of the story of the Moonstone which related to the transport of it from London to Yorkshire, to the risk which Mr. Blake had run in removing it from the bank at Frisinghall, and to the unexpected appearance of the Indians at the house on the evening of the birthday. And I purposely assumed, in referring to these events, to have misunderstood much of what Mr. Blake himself had told me a few hours since. In this way I set him talking on the subject with which it was now vitally important to fill his mind, without allowing him to suspect that I was making him talk for a purpose. Little by little he became so interested in putting me right that he forgot to fidget in the bed. His mind was far away from the question of the opium, at the all-important time when his eyes first told me that the opium was beginning to lay its hold on his brain. I looked at my watch. It wanted five minutes to twelve, when the premonitory symptoms of the working of the laudanum first showed themselves to me. At this time no unpractised eyes would have detected any change in him, but as the minutes of the new morning wore away, the swiftly subtle progress of the influence began to show itself more plainly. The sublime intoxication of opium gleamed in his eyes. The dew of a stealthy perspiration began to glisten on his face. In five minutes more, the talk which he still kept up with me failed in coherence. He held steadily to the subject of the diamond, but he ceased to complete his sentences. A little later the sentences dropped to single words. Then there was an interval of silence. Then he sat up in bed. Then, still busy with the subject of the diamond, he began to talk again, not to me, but to himself. That change told me that the first stage in the experiment was reached. The stimulant influence of the opium had got him. The time now was twenty-three minutes past twelve. 
The next half hour, at most, would decide the question of whether he would or would not get up from his bed and leave the room. In the breathless interest of watching him, in the unutterable triumph of seeing the first result of the experiment declare itself in the manner and nearly at the time which I had anticipated, I had utterly forgotten the two companions of my night vigil. Looking towards them now, I saw the law, as represented by Mr. Bruff's papers, lying unheeded on the floor. Mr. Bruff himself was looking eagerly through a crevice left in the imperfectly drawn curtains of the bed, and Betteridge, oblivious of all respect for social distinctions, was peeping over Mr. Bruff's shoulder. They both started back on finding that I was looking at them, like two boys caught out by their schoolmaster in a fault. I signed to them to take off their boots quietly, as I was taking off mine. If Mr. Blake gave us the chance of following him, it was vitally necessary to follow him without noise. Ten minutes passed, and nothing happened. Then he suddenly threw the bedclothes off him. He put one leg out of bed. He waited. "'I wish I had never taken it out of the bank,' he said to himself. "'It was safe in the bank.' My heart throbbed fast. The pulses at my temples beat furiously. The doubt about the safety of the diamond was, once more, the dominant impression in his brain. On that one pivot the whole success of the experiment turned. The prospect thus suddenly opened before me was too much for my shattered nerves. I was obliged to look away from him, or I should have lost my self-control." there was another interval of silence. When I could trust myself to look back at him, he was out of his bed, standing erect at the side of it. The pupils of his eyes were now contracted. His eyeballs gleamed in the light of the candle as he moved his head slowly to and fro. He was thinking, he was doubting. He spoke again. "'How do I know?' he said. The Indians may be hidden in the house. He stopped and walked slowly to the other end of the room. He turned, waited, came back to the bed. It's not even locked up, he went on. It's in the drawer of her cabinet, and the drawer doesn't lock. He sat down on the side of the bed. Anybody might take it, he said. He rose again restlessly, and reiterated his first words. "'How do I know? The Indians may be hidden in the house.' He waited again. I drew back behind the half-curtain of the bed. He looked about the room with a vacant glitter in his eyes. It was a breathless moment. There was a pause of some sort. A pause in the action of the opium, a pause in the action of the brain? Who could tell? Everything depended now on what he did next. He laid himself down again on the bed. A horrible doubt crossed my mind. Was it possible that the sedative action of the opium was making itself felt already? It was not in my experience that it should do this. 
but what is experience where opium is concerned? There are probably no two men in existence on whom the drug acts in exactly the same manner. Was some constitutional peculiarity in him feeling the influence in some new way? Were we to fail on the very brink of success? No. He got up again abruptly. How the devil am I to sleep, he said, with this on my mind. He looked at the light, burning on the table at the head of his bed. After a moment he took the candle in his hand. I blew out the second candle, burning behind the closed curtains. I drew back, with Mr. Bruff and Betteridge, into the farthest corner by the bed. I signed to them to be silent, as if their lives had depended on it. We waited, seeing and hearing nothing. We waited, hidden from him by the curtains. The light which he was holding on the other side of us moved suddenly. The next moment he passed us, swift and noiseless, with the candle in his hand. He opened the bedroom door and went out. We followed him along the corridor. We followed him down the stairs. We followed him along the second corridor. He never looked back, he never hesitated. He opened the sitting-room door and went in, leaving it open behind him. The door was hung, like all the other doors in the house, on large old-fashioned hinges. When it was opened, a crevice was opened between the door and the post. I signed to my two companions to look through this, so as to keep them from showing themselves. I placed myself, outside the door also, on the opposite side. A recess in the wall was at my left hand, in which I could instantly hide myself if he showed any signs of looking back into the corridor. He advanced to the middle of the room with the candle still in his hand. He looked about him, but he never looked back. I saw the door of Miss Verinder's bedroom standing ajar. She had put out her light. She controlled herself nobly. The dim white outline of her summer dress was all that I could see. Nobody who had not known it beforehand would have suspected that there was a living creature in the room. She kept back in the dark. Not a word, not a movement escaped her. It was now ten minutes past one. I heard through the dead silence the soft drip of the rain and the tremulous passage of the night air through the trees. After waiting irresolute for a minute or more in the middle of the room, he moved to the corner near the window where the Indian cabinet stood. He put his candle on the top of the cabinet. He opened and shut one drawer after another until he came to the drawer in which the mock diamond was put. He looked into the drawer for a moment. Then he took the mock diamond out with his right hand. With the other hand he took the candle from the top of the cabinet. He walked back a few steps towards the middle of the room and stood still again. Thus far he had exactly repeated what he had done on the birthday night. Would his next proceeding be the same as the proceeding of last year? 
Would he leave the room? Would he go back now, as I believed he had gone back then, to his bedchamber? Would he show us what he had done with the diamond when he had returned to his own room? His first action, when he moved once more, proved to be an action which he had not performed when he was under the influence of the opium for the first time. He put the candle down on a table, and wandered on a little towards the farther end of the room. There was a sofa there. He leaned heavily on the back of it with his left hand, then roused himself and returned to the middle of the room. I could now see his eyes. They were getting dull and heavy, the glitter in them was fast dying out. The suspense of the moment proved too much for Miss Verinder's self-control. She advanced a few steps, then stopped again. Mr. Brough and Betteridge looked across the open doorway at me for the first time. The prevision of a coming disappointment was impressing itself on their minds as well as on mine. Still, so long as he stood where he was, there was hope. We waited in unutterable expectation to see what would happen next. The next event was decisive. He let the mock diamond drop out of his hand. It fell on the floor before the doorway, plainly visible to him and to everyone. He made no effort to pick it up. He looked down at it vacantly, and as he looked, his head sank on his breast. He staggered, roused himself for an instant, walked back unsteadily to the sofa, and sat down on it. He made a last effort. He tried to rise and sank back. His head fell on the sofa cushions. It was then twenty-five minutes past one o'clock. Before I had put my watch back in my pocket, he was asleep. It was all over now. The sedative influence had got him. The experiment was at an end. I entered the room, telling Mr. Brough and Betteridge that they might follow me. There was no fear of disturbing him. We were free to move and speak. The first thing to settle, I said, is the question of what we are to do with him. He will probably sleep for the next six or seven hours at least. It is some distance to carry him back to his own room. When I was younger I could have done it alone, but my health and strength are not what they were. I am afraid I must ask you to help me. Before they could answer, Miss Verinder called to me softly. She met me at the door of her room with a light shawl and with the counterpane from her own bed. "'Do you mean to watch him while he sleeps?' she asked. "'Yes, I am not sure enough of the action of the opium in his case to be willing to leave him alone.' She handed me the shawl and the counterpane. "'Why should you disturb him?' she whispered. "'Make his bed on the sofa. I can shut my door and keep in my room.' It was infinitely the simplest and the safest way of disposing of him for the night. I mentioned the suggestion to Mr. Brough and Betteridge, who both approved of my adopting it. In five minutes I had laid him comfortably on the sofa, and had covered him lightly with the counterpane and the shawl. 
Miss Verinder wished us good-night, and closed the door. At my request we three then drew round the table in the middle of the room on which the candle was still burning, and on which writing materials were placed. "'Before we separate,' I began, "'I have a word to say about the experiment which has been tried to-night. Two distinct objects were to be gained by it. The first of these objects was to prove that Mr. Blake entered this room and took the diamond last year, acting unconsciously and irresponsibly under the influence of opium. After what you have both seen, are you both satisfied so far?' They answered me in the affirmative, without a moment's hesitation. The second object, I went on, was to discover what he did with the diamond after he was seen by Miss Verinder to leave her sitting-room with the jewel in his hand on the birthday night. The gaining of this object depended, of course, on his still continuing exactly to repeat his proceedings of last year. He has failed to do that, and the purpose of the experiment is defeated accordingly. I can't assert that I am not disappointed at the result, but I can honestly say that I am not surprised by it. I told Mr. Blake from the first that our complete success in this matter depended on our completely reproducing in him the physical and moral conditions of last year, and I warned him that this was the next thing to a downright impossibility. We have only partially reproduced the conditions, and the experiment has been only partially successful in consequence. It is also possible that I may have administered too large a dose of laudanum, but I myself look upon the first reason that I have given as the true reason why we have to lament a failure, as well as to rejoice over a success. After saying those words I put the writing materials before Mr. Bruff, and asked him if he had any objection, before we separated for the night, to draw out and sign a plain statement of what he had seen. He at once took the pen, and produced the statement with the fluent readiness of a practised hand. "'I owe you this,' he said, signing the paper, "'as some atonement for what passed between us earlier in the evening. I beg your pardon, Mr. Jennings, for having doubted you. You have done Franklin Blake an inestimable service.' In our legal phrase, you have proved your case. Betteridge's apology was characteristic of the man. Mr. Jennings, he said, when you read Robinson Crusoe again, which I strongly recommend you to do, you will find that he never scruples to acknowledge it when he turns out to have been in the wrong. Please to consider me, sir, as doing what Robinson Crusoe did on the present occasion. With those words he signed the paper in his turn. Mr. Bruff took me aside as we rose from the table. One word about the diamond, he said. Your theory is that Franklin Blake hid the moonstone in his room. My theory is that the Moonstone is in the possession of Mr. Lucas' bankers in London. We won't dispute which of us is right. We will only ask which of us is in a position to put his theory to the test. The test in my case, I answered, has been tried to-night and has failed. 
"'The test in my case,' rejoined Mr. Bruff, "'is still in process of trial. "'For the last two days I have had a watch set for Mr. Luker at the bank, "'and I shall cause that watch to be continued until the last day of the month. "'I know that he must take the diamond himself out of his banker's hands, "'and I am acting on the chance that the person who has pledged the diamond "'may force him to do this by redeeming the pledge.' In that case I may be able to lay my hand on the person. If I succeed, I clear up the mystery exactly at the point where the mystery baffles us now. Do you admit that, so far? I admitted it readily. I am going back to town by the morning train, pursued the lawyer. I may hear, when I return, that a discovery has been made— and it may be of the greatest importance that I should have Franklin Blake at hand to appeal to, if necessary. I intend to tell him, as soon as he wakes, that he must return with me to London. After all that has happened, may I trust to your influence to back me? Certainly, I said. Mr. Bruff shook hands with me, and left the room. Betteridge followed him out. I went to the sofa to look at Mr. Blake. He had not moved since I had laid him down and made his bed. He lay locked in a deep and quiet sleep. While I was still looking at him, I heard the bedroom door softly opened. Once more Miss Verinder appeared on the threshold in her pretty summer dress. "'Do me a last favour," she whispered, let me watch him with you. I hesitated, not in the interests of propriety, only in the interest of her night's rest. She came close to me and took my hand. I can't sleep, I can't even sit still in my own room, she said. Oh, Mr. Jennings, if you were me, only think how you would long to sit and look at him. Say yes, do. Is it necessary to mention that I gave way? Surely not. She drew a chair to the foot of the sofa. She looked at him in a silent ecstasy of happiness till the tears rose in her eyes. She dried her eyes and said she would fetch her work. She fetched her work, and never did a single stitch of it. It lay in her lap. She was not even able to look away from him long enough to thread her needle. I thought of my own youth. I thought of the gentle eyes which had once looked love at me. In the heaviness of my heart I turned to my journal for relief, and wrote in it what is written here. So we kept our watch together in silence, one of us absorbed in his writing, the other absorbed in her love. Hour after hour he lay in his deep sleep. The light of the new day grew and grew in the room, and still he never moved. Towards six o'clock I felt the warning which told me that my pains were coming back. I was obliged to leave her alone with him for a little while. I said I would go upstairs and fetch another pillow for him out of his room. It was not a long attack this time. In a little while I was able to venture back and let her see me again. 
I found her at the head of the sofa when I returned. She was just touching his forehead with her lips. I shook my head as soberly as I could and pointed to her chair. She looked back at me with a bright smile and a charming colour in her face. "'You would have done it,' she whispered, "'in my place.' It is just eight o'clock. He is beginning to move for the first time. Miss Verinder is kneeling by the side of the sofa. She has so placed herself that when his eyes first open they must open on her face. Shall I leave them together? Yes. Eleven o'clock. The house is empty again. They have arranged it among themselves. They have all gone to London by the ten o'clock train. My brief dream of happiness is over. I have awakened again to the realities of my friendless and lonely life. I dare not trust myself to write down the kind words that have been said to me, especially by Miss Verinder and Mr. Blake. Besides, it is needless. Those words will come back to me in my solitary hours, and will help me through what is left of the end of my life. Mr. Blake is to write and tell me what happens in London. Miss Verinder is to return to Yorkshire in the autumn, for her marriage, no doubt, and I am to take a holiday and be a guest in the house. Oh, me, how I felt as the grateful happiness looked at me out of her eyes, and the warm pressure of her hand said, This is your doing. My poor patients are waiting for me. Back again this morning to the old routine. Back again to-night to the dreadful alternative between the opium and the pain. God be praised for his mercy. I have seen a little sunshine. I have had a happy time. End of part 44